seems inevitable when we have the time for prayer that we forget some things or leave some things out. We are grateful that John is back safely from Nashville. Got back yesterday. And today is Marie's birthday. How did we forget to mention that? And also, we handed out a questionnaire several weeks ago, and they are due today. So, unless you're like my students asking for an extension, uh, your assignments are due today. I'm grateful for those who have already turned in their work. Thank you for your help. Job chapter 6. Proverbs tells us, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That is, a friend can and should tell you the truth, no matter if the telling may wound you. But the teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Job's friends were silent for a while, but then they spoke and they wounded an already critically wounded friend. Rather than comforting him, they added to his situation. I think in some sense they were in shock as much as Job was. They suffered a double shock. First of all, when they were coming to his town from a distance, they saw he was sitting on the garbage heap outside of town and they could hardly recognize him. And they were really moved by that. But then after sitting with him for seven days and seven nights in shocked silence, they're shocked again when he opens his mouth and he says, may the day of my birth perish And the night it was said, a boy is born. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant that never saw the light of day? They are shocked at his situation, but they are even more shocked at his response to the situation in which he cursed the day that he was born. Thinking to correct his errors, which must have been fairly serious given his condition. I mean, he must have done something really horrible for God to do this to him. They began to speak to him. And Eliphaz leads the charge uh, based on a supposed vision. I told you that I really doubt that he had this vision. I think he made it up to sort of strengthen his case. He begins with the same or from the same position that they all do, including Job. And that is, you reap what you sow. And so Job must have sown something horrible to reap this disaster that has come into his life. He argues that no one is righteous before God. And then he indirectly calls Job a fool and blames him for the disasters that have come upon him, including the deaths of his ten children. He then calls on Job to repent, to be reconciled to God, and to understand that what's happened to him is is discipline, it's correction. God's trying to bring him back to the fold. And he dangles in front of him the promise that if Job returns to God, if Job serves and worships God, then he will have a secure life, he will have a prosperous life, he will have many children, and he will live a full-on life. He will not sort of get weaker as his life progresses, but when it's time for him to die, he will die as a really strong and vigorous man. As I said last Sunday, In this, Eliphaz is more in Satan's camp than he is in God's because he encourages Job to worship and serve God for the benefits that he can get from such worship and service. Eliphaz and the others imagine themselves to be Job's friends. 
So they are trying to rescue him from whatever caused these disasters. One writer says that they are trying out their theological and pastoral skills on him. Here, Job, let us fix you up. But they have given him bad, or they will give him bad advice, based on true premises that have been misapplied to his situation. Just a side note, um, I think that in the course of going through the book of Job, I may take a few weeks out and just look at what the Bible says about friendship. Um, I think to better understand what the scripture says, to better understand how these friends failed him, failed Job, but also that we might put into practice the matter of friendship. I've spoken about the friends and the shocks that they have experienced. But what about Job? I mean, isn't he the, the real victim here? And I use that word carefully. Uh, he was a righteous, a blameless, an upright man who feared God and shunned evil. A wealthy man in terms of material things. A man with seven sons and three daughters. I don't know if we've mentioned it, but both seven and three in Scripture are numbers of completion. Got a good family, a family he cares for and prays for, and then he loses everything all his material possessions, his children, his health. And it is in the midst of this devastating condition, whatever it is, that his friends come to him. Um, we are told, and let me just give you a brief list, that uh, he has painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery to, to scrape off. Uh, to scrape his skin. We read in chapter 7, which the Lord willing we will see next week, my body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. Chapter 19, I am nothing but skin and bones. And then in chapter 30, that his skin had grown black and was peeling away. He was in, I think, a horrible physical state. But he, in, he retained his integrity. When his wife encouraged him to curse God and die, he retained his integrity and said, uh, we are told that in all this, he did not sin in what he said. But after seven days of being with him and not saying anything, his friends now gang up on him and are blaming him for what happened to him. And the analogy comes to mind, and, and I, I don't use it lightly. Please understand that. But it is almost akin to blaming the victim of rape and saying, you're the one responsible. It's your fault that this happened to you. And in our legal system, which is adversarial, truly God helped the person who, who makes the accusation and then is, has to get in the witness chair and is almost legally raped again as this person tries to describe and to say, no, I didn't ask for this. But Job's friends, here he is, he's a mess. And what do they say? It's your fault. You're the one who brought this on yourself. There's one more thing even more devastating than being kicked in the teeth by your friends when you're down. And that is that God is silent and nowhere to be found. And I think this, more than anything, is what is devastating to Job. You see, Job doesn't know that God is working out some divine purpose. That his circumstances and his experiences are connected to God's secret purposes. 
purposes, by the way, that are so secret that centuries later, we who read this book, we don't know what those purposes are. Because do you imagine that that God is just trying to prove a point to Satan, the cynical accuser? Do you think that God has allowed Job to go through all this just to make a point to Satan? I don't think so. I think what is at work here is beyond our comprehension, uh, our ability to understand. But from where Job sits and the garbage heap and the ash heap outside his hometown, it all seems so unfair, so unjust. One of the kids in the neighborhood used to say, for no reason. For no reason this has happened to Job, and he cannot understand it. Beginning in chapter 6, we find Job answering his friends. And as I mentioned before, we have three cycles where Eliphaz speaks, Job answers. Bildad speaks, Job answers. Zophar speaks, Job answers. This happens three times. And as we look at Job's answers, and it will take us a while to get through all of them, I think we will begin to see that Job is on a pilgrimage of faith. But I'm not sure that he's progressing upward. In many ways, it seems that he is going downward until God finally reaches down and grabs him and gets his attention. Job's answers generally have two parts. That is the case here in the first answer. Chapter 6, he answers his friends. He speaks to them. In chapter 7, he will speak to God. The God who is silent and who seems so far away. Just one more thing before we get into chapter 6. You may be familiar with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on uh, the terminally ill, Death and Dying, where she argues, it came out in the 60s, that people go through various stages, beginning with denial, then anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. In the 70s, uh, another book was written uh, by Colin Murray Parks, who talked about the various stages of grief. Kubler-Ross wrote about the terminally ill, and this writer, he wrote about those who are struggling with grief, that there is numbness and shock, and then we have questioning, depression, anger, and then finally resolution. And it's been argued that unless a person goes through these various stages, that the grief sort of gets blocked and is never resolved. Um, One could make the case that, in fact, Job is working his way through these various stages. At first is the numbness and the shock. Certainly his friends shared that with him. Then there is the questioning in chapter 3 where he curses the day he was born. He says, why have these things happened to me? Now we come to the anger part. Make no mistake, Job is angry. But I want to be careful that we don't somehow reduce Job's situation uh, to a matter of psychological stress and that the resolution, you know, he works his way through the grief and then he finds psychological integration and resolution at the end of the story. This is a situation of struggling with faith in God, trying to understand what is going on, why God will allow such things to happen. And the resolution is not some psychological manner. It is the almighty Shaddai coming to Job and saying, I'm God and you're not. And interestingly enough, when the story is all said and done, Job doesn't know any more than he knew at the beginning about why this happened. What he does know is that God is God and he's not. But again, make no mistake, in our passage today, Job is angry. 
generally speaking, in chapter 6, he is angry at his friends. And then in chapter 7, he is angry with God. And the Lord willing, next week we will look at his anger with God. But today, his anger with his friends. First of all, in, in both chapters, the first part, Job talks about his situation. Let's look at the first seven verses here of Job chapter 6. Then Job replied, he's answering Eliphaz, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. As with chapter 3, Job begins with an outburst of emotion. Somehow trying to convey to his friends the enormity of what he is suffering. The last time I went to the emergency room uh, for the kidney stone, uh, they, they always ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is the pain? And when I first got there, I said eight. But I don't know if you've been to an emergency room, but they make you wait. And by the time I got into the room, they said, on a scale of one to ten, what is the pain? I said, twelve. Okay? It's hurting. My pain is nothing. And I think most human suffering is nothing, Job would argue, compared to what he is suffering. He doesn't use a scale of one to ten. He uses a huge scale with two trays, with the center part. And he said, if you could put all my anguish and misery on the one side, and on the other side put all the sands of the sea, the sands of the sea would be lighter than the anguish and the misery that I have been experiencing. Anguish refers to the grief that his trials have brought about and the misery, the misfortunes that he has suffered. His suffering would outweigh all the sand. And so he says, no wonder my words have been impetuous. You know, when you are suffering, you're not, you're not always calm and collected. You don't always think rationally. And Job says, listen, I'm, I'm in great pain here, in anguish, in misery. And so if I spoke impetuously, are you surprised? The words of chapter 3, are you surprised that I've been impetuous? By the way, do you have emotional outbursts? And what triggers emotional outbursts for you? Not being able to find a parking space? Bad traffic? A screaming kid at the table next to you in a restaurant? These three things I suffered this past week. Uh, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what... Job had lost everything. He had lost ten children. He lost everything. I think he wants his friends to cut him a little slack when he emotionally responds to what has happened to him. Because there's something else besides the suffering. What has been the source of his suffering? Verse number four. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job pictures God as a good archer, a great archer, who 
who's been shooting arrows at him, and not merely arrows, but arrows that have poison. And so they not only hit their mark, Job's body, his being, drinks in the poison. He also uses a picture of God as someone with a great army who's coming against the city, who's marshalling his forces against the city. And the same horror that a person would experience having been shot by a poison arrow, or the, what you would experience if you were inside a city and you see this army surrounding your city, that is what Job has experienced. That is what he feels. But it's more than that. Because the person shooting at Job, the person surrounding the city with all his forces, is somebody that Job thought he knew. God Almighty. The forces against the city are led by a friend. The arrows are shot by someone he thought he could trust. What could be worse than for God to be against you? Well, It's not worse, but it doesn't help when your friends are against you. And in verses 5 and 6, he uses a couple uh, images that are, if we put them together, I think it doesn't work. I think actually verses 5 and 6 are are very well divided. In in verse number 5, he's talking about something. You know, when a wild donkey has food, it doesn't bray. When an ox has fodder, it's quiet. You know, when Job's life was okay... He wasn't given to emotional outbursts. You know, he wasn't saying, oh, what is this happening? You know, he was fine. But now that these things have happened to him, isn't an emotional outburst allowed? Can't he say something? And then in verse 6, is tasteless food eaten without salt, or is there flavor in the white of an egg? Here I think he's talking about the advice his friends have given him, and it's... Verse number seven, he says, I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. You, you know, you, you make me want to throw up. All this advice you're giving to me, it's like eating the white of an egg. It's like eating food that does, hasn't been salted. It, it's useless. It's tasteless. And I want nothing to do with it. But then he goes on in verses eight through 13. And here Job says, I just want to die. Just let me die. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain that I had not denied the holy or denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone as my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Verses 8, 9, and 10, Job wishes that God would just end it all. It's not a wish, it's a request. He's requesting that God would crush him, that God would cut him off, uh, which means either to brutally beat or to trample to death. Uh, Job just wants to die. But again, and I mentioned this before, Job rejects the notion of suicide. If death is going to come to him, It must come from the one who has given him life, and that is God. And why does does Job want to die? Well, I think there are different reasons. One is he's he's in such incredible pain and and distress that, that death would be preferable to continuing to live life the way that he is. 
But I think there are two other things. If God were to kill him, it would be an answer to prayer. And the God who has been silent through this whole fiasco would finally be speaking up, would finally be answering Job's prayer. And even in death, there would be that sense of relief that God is there, he does hear my prayer, and he's answered my prayer by killing me. Again, I think it's hard for us to imagine, if we're not in Job's position, how that death could be so welcomed. But the reason he mentions here specifically is, if God were to kill him right now, Job would die without having denied God's word, God's truth. I think Job is really afraid of that. I mean, there's only so much a person can take. And Job doesn't want to be pushed beyond the limits of his endurance, at which point he would deny God and deny the truth of what God says, and perhaps even follow his wife's advice to curse God and die. Verses 11, 12, and 13, Job says, you know, I'm just so weak. I'm just so tired. I've, I've got no strength left. I just can't go on anymore. It would be better if God would simply kill me. Well, he has some strength left because in verses 14 through 30, he lets his friends have it. These friends who have come to comfort him, who really are only adding to his affliction, Job now speaks to them. While they call themselves friends, and you'll notice in verse number 14, Job even calls them brothers. Proverbs tells us of a friend who sticks closer than a brother. They really have failed to act toward him as friends. Let's read verses 14 through 23. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their routes They go up into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Shiva look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrived there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf? Pay a ransom for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the hand of the enemy? Ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless. Job says to these friends, you're not very good friends at all. Let's begin with verse 14, because verse 14 has been translated in a variety of ways. And I'm not, I must confess, happy with the way that it is in the NIV, because the sense that it's given here is that Job is saying to his friends, listen, even if I deny the Holy One, you should still stand by me. And that's not what he's saying. Uh, And if you look at the rest of the passage, particularly verse 15, what he is saying is, in abandoning him, they have abandoned their fear of the Almighty. You may remember that we've talked about the two great commandments. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our being. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, God, we can't see our neighbors. We can see. And so it is in demonstrating our love to our neighbors that we demonstrate love for God. The ones we can see, 
we show our love for the one we cannot see. Well, in abandoning Job, their friend, they are really abandoning God. They are abandoning their fear of God. And as such, they are useless. They are as useless as the wadis of the desert. That's the word used here. The wadi, these stream beds that, you know, when the mountains have snow and it melts, man, they are filled with water. But when summertime comes, they are dry as dirt. And he mentions two caravan uh, cities, Tima to the north, Sheba to the south, southwest and northwest of the Arabian Peninsula. And that caravans, I mean, you're out in the desert, you need water. Caravans would take a detour to go to wadis because last time we were here, there was water only to find out that there's not water there and they perish. The promise of water was there, but the reality was not there. And Job's friends have come and I think for seven days he was quiet because he was hoping they would have something good to say. And finally, he can't take it anymore. He's like, he has this outburst. And then when they finally say something, it is of no value whatsoever. And he says, you know, did I ever ask you for anything? I mean, have I been such a demanding friend? I mean, is, is that why, instead of comforting me, you are really adding to my affliction? It's interesting. Um, what I find interesting is that he says of them that they have they are afraid in verse number 21. You see something dreadful. That's him and are afraid that their fear has dissolved their loyalty to him. They see him in such a horrible situation. That rather than saying, Job will stand by you, we're here. And they are there. But instead of saying, we believe in you. We don't know why this has happened, but we stand with you. Instead, they say, Job, you're a terrible man. You've done something horrible that this would happen to you. Their loyalty dissolves in the face of their fear. Then we come to the last part. Which has been taken one of two ways. I take it in the more positive way. Some have taken it as just being the height of sarcasm. But I think Job is gracious towards his friends. And so beginning in verse 24, he says, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as whim? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? What seems to be a dramatic shift of mood, Job asks for guidance from his friends. He wants them to teach him, to show him his error, his unintentional sins. Uh, you might say, well, wait a minute. That's what, wasn't that what uh, Eliphaz was doing? No. Job's friends seem to believe that Job has committed some grievous sin that he knows about. What Job is saying is, you know what? I may have done something, and the word that is used is an unintentional sin. I may have committed a sin, and I didn't even know it. 
and you're my friends, you're outside of me, maybe you, maybe you have insight, maybe you can tell me, have I committed some horrible sin that I'm not even aware of? One of the wonderful things about being married is that you have somebody there who sees and hears what you do and has a different perspective. Job has friends. He's hoping they have a different perspective. But thus far, thus far, they haven't been listening to him. I like what he says uh, in verse uh, 26. Uh, Do you mean to correct what I say and treat the words of a despairing man as wind? In other words, you think I'm just a bunch of hot air. And how can you even correct hot air? You're not even listening to me. You're simply trying to correct me. And verse number 27 is devastating, I think. He says, you would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friends or your friend. Um, It was the custom in the ancient world that if a man died in debt, uh, whatever he had that survived him would be sold. And if a man owes a bunch of people money, they would cast lots and they would say, "Okay, I get this kid. I'll sell this child into slavery and that'll help. Help me get back some of the money uh, that I loaned this man. Job says to his friends, you're, you're just as cold and callous. You're vultures. Well, it's not business. I mean, it's business. It's not personal. You know, I have to take your kid and sell him. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it's not personal. And Job's like, man, you people have just, you're not listening to me. You're trying to correct me. And you really have, as I said about Eliphaz, he has given away the character of his friend. He's basically saying, you have no integrity. Job wants them to listen to what he says. He wants them to look at him. Did you notice that um, in verse number 28? But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? The implication is while they're giving these great theological advices to him, they're not looking at him. They can't even stand to look at him. Job's like, listen to me. Look me in the eyes. Do you think I would lie to your faces? He wants them to reconsider what they've said. Because they've said, and I mean, we've just begun. They will say some fairly harsh things. These friends have not been much of friends so far. And Job is angry with them, and I think rightly so. But again, Lord willing, next week we will look at Job's anger at God. It's a much more touchy and delicate situation. A German theologian was asked, a theologian of the last part of the 20th century, what is the greatest defect among American Christians? You're from Europe, from the continent. You're an outsider looking in. What is the greatest defect among American Christians? And he answered, they have an inadequate view of suffering. And that may be. Uh, Certainly, I think we have been sheltered from a lot of suffering. You know, you get a headache, you take an aspirin, indigestion, Rolaids. We have, it seems, just so much medicine for anything that goes wrong with us physically. Did you know that there are more psychiatrists in New York City than in all of Europe? Uh, 
we suffer. I don't think we should diminish our suffering, but we have remedies that are possible for our suffering. Um, We do lack, I think, oftentimes a context within which to put that suffering. Because if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm in pain, then we're ready to write a prescription. Do you have a headache, toothache? Is 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 your, your heart, I mean, do you need to see a psychiatrist? Do you need to see the pastor? I mean, but to actually say suffering is part of our everyday life, you know, we don't, our lives are like people in the third country who live with suffering day after day after day. And so when we do suffer, I think we see it as something strange. What's this? Why is this happening to me? And we lack the context within which to put it to say, oh, I'm a human being. I live in a fallen world and suffering is part of my life. But I digress. If I were asked the question, what is the greatest defect among American Christians? I would answer, we do not listen. I think it's a cultural character flaw that we share with the rest of the people in this country. We're like Job's friends. And, you know, Job just wishes, I wish you would listen to what I said. They think he's cursed God, and he hasn't. He's just had this emotional outburst, and all of a sudden they see him as the most wicked sinner on the planet. Because they're not listening to him, they're not looking at him, they've already got these answers being cooked up in their minds as they're getting ready uh, to speak to him. For all we know, the seven days when they were quiet, they were sitting there, uh, scheming as to, okay, I'm really going to let him have it. Uh, and so when he does speak, they don't listen. James tells us everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I would suggest in our culture we have reversed that order. Uh, we are quick To be angry, we are quick to speak, and we are very slow, very slow indeed to listen. Job's friends did not listen. They heard him, but they didn't listen. And as a result, the advice they give him is very bad advice indeed. I would suggest to you that we need to listen. That we need to listen to the people God brings into our lives. I think we need to listen to God as well. And the one thing I take away from this chapter of of friends who have failed Job is that they didn't listen. And you know what? Sometimes I don't listen as well. I'm sure you've seen this on many churches or on bumper stickers. Jesus is the answer. No one has thought to ask what is the question. We are so ready to speak before we've heard, before we've listened. May God forgive us for that. And may we as God's people be people who listen. And then, because there is a time to listen, there is a time to speak, when it is the time to speak, to respond in grace and love. Let's pray together.
Father, it is hard to imagine and to picture Job's suffering in his situation. It is less difficult to imagine his friends who had it all figured out why all these terrible things had happened to him. Who heard him but who didn't listen. Who weren't even really willing to look him in the face, look him in the eyes. And as a culture, as a people, I think we are guilty of this as well. In our dealing with people every day, even in our dealings with you. We think of you as the one who must listen to us and not the other way around. I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts and we would take to heart the things that we've heard. And by your grace, not only hear, but put into practice the things that we have heard. May we think before we speak. It seems simple enough and basic enough. But something far too often we're guilty of failing to do. And may we listen with tenderness and compassion. I thank you for this time that we could spend together. And I ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.